Welcome to Canada's podcast. Hi, this is Celine Williams hosting from Ontario for Canada's podcast. My guest today is Stephen Saltz, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Rivalry Corp, Canada's newest publicly listed iGaming and sports betting company. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's absolutely a pleasure. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit. I know we were talking before I hit record, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey to becoming the CEO of uh, Rivalry and how you got to this point. Sure. Well, my first contract actually just said business. It didn't even have a title CEO. <laughs> my, my job was business. We we're just looking back because like we had to update our contracts before the company went public. So I have two main like operating co-founders. Well, there's four of us, but one is kind of the chairman of the board, and uh, and then his name's Steve as well. And then another one is uh, Ryan and Kevin, and we're like op- you know operational. So Ryan's was technology; he's now our CTO. Kevin's was marketing. I think he was our CMO for a bit. Technically, now he's our COO. And then my mind said business. <laughs> that was literally what the contract said. Now CEO, I guess. So yeah. Um, yeah, so rivalry is like a you know it's an esports or like competitive gaming focused sports book we offer kind of everything and then very much also like an internet culture brand so very like meme ridiculous and silly and in your face and uh very big brand kind of in the thing that we do but yeah my own background is was super interested in gaming when i was younger a lot of people my age went into finance professionally so was in investment banking for a little bit not doing banking but doing equity research which is more yeah, writing research reports on potential outcomes for, for public stocks. So I was doing that for a bit. And then in 2014 and 15, was really interested in what was happening in the virtual goods marketplaces online. So this is like NFTs, like pre-NFTs, where there was a couple, there's a couple of very large games. So the two of the biggest esports actually today still called uh, CSGO and Dota 2. One's a shooting game, one's a strategy game. And the publisher for both those games is the same. And they created a system where you could actually transact in-game items with other players for real money because some are very rare, some are very common. And some of the rare ones go for thousands of dollars. And it's just an aesthetic that changes the way your weapon looks or you physically look or whatever. And then there was a, a way mechanically that you can run a third-party marketplace um, to allow users to transact those goods outside of like the one the publisher controls. And the reason why people wanted to do that was because you could actually withdraw real money. Because in the internal one, you couldn't actually withdraw, even though you could buy and sell for real money, you couldn't actually take money out. In these third-party ones, you could. So I was trading items around those marketplaces while still working in finance because it was these were like, there was billions of liquidity actually in these marketplaces and they traded like stocks. So I thought it was interesting, kind of compared, but uh, brought my two passions together. And then I reached out to these two guys, Ryan and Kevin, who eventually became my co-founders at Rivalry, who were running a very large one uh, out of Toronto called Loot Market. And met them, wanted to invest in what they were doing. We just ended up becoming business partners. This goes into like 2016. And then that was it. And we be, yeah, became partners, co-founded what would eventually become Rivalry, raised some money and went from there. But it was, yeah, it, it, it kind of didn't go in thinking I would be the CEO or that that's what would happen. We all kind of just played to our strengths. And then the role of the CEO kind of just fell more to my strengths than theirs, but it started off as just business and then it became CEO. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of CEOs out there who can relate to business being a strength and CEO being the result of that, where it's like, yeah, yep, yeah. this is the thing. Yeah. Um, and it was like three of us in his basement in Chinatown in Toronto, four of us. 
And then, yeah, now it's like 100 and whatever, 110, 115 people globally in 20 countries. So it's, it's, it's changed. It's changed a lot in the last four years, four and a half years. But yeah. Yes. That's a, a very different role when you're a CEO with that many people <laughs> versus yes. the head of business in someone's basement. Yeah. It's a different world. Yeah, it didn't mean much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, um, in get, so I, this is based on what you just said, actually. I don't know that I would have asked this otherwise, but I, I am curious. That's a lot of change in four, four and a half years, right? That's, that's a lot of growth. Yeah. It, 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 and congratulations, because it is, it's a tremendous amount of growth. Um, but it's also a lot of change for you as stepping into the role of CEO and having 100 and 120 people in 20 countries. So it's not only the, the remote element, but the cultural element, but the growth element, but all of these things together. And I'm curious, you know, what has that been like for you? What has, what have you learned? What have you noticed? What have you observed? What's that experience been like for you in, in such a protracted period of time? Yeah, there was a lot of <clears throat> like personal change as well because it's just like critical years even for myself. So yeah, I started the company when I was 25 and I'm 31 now, just turned 31. I got married, had a kid, about to have a second kid, got a dog. And then and took the, and then So the all went, paced out, just yeah, like <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the company also went public last year. <laughs> so it all happened within like the same the same window. And then COVID's been like two of those years, which has been odd. Yeah. So um, I don't know how to answer that question, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure how to answer that question. I think like more, more definitely like more, like you, you become calloused is like, like a, I, someone else said this thing. It's like callousing of the brain. It's like when you lift weights, you get calluses on your hands and it's just like callousing of the brain. I look back and think like the things that would upset me or like emotionally frustrate me in year one and year two versus today are like, you know extremely different so you just become more calloused <laughs> mentally but i think also like you have to yeah yeah a huge amount of self-growth i saw someone else say this also that like building a business is like just exercise and like self-development or something like this it was some line like that I, I think that's true like you you have to personally develop enormously if you want to scale a business properly mm-hmm. and have like the maturity that's required to come with it uh be very kind of vulnerable to your own um fuck-ups and the things you're bad at because you'll find your bad at a ton of shit. So yeah, there's a lot of yeah. that. Yeah. But it, yeah. It, it varies. Like I learned a lot from like, yeah, building culture is hard. You know, uh, recruiting is hard. Uh, creating great communication in a company is hard. Um, goal setting is hard. Getting feedback is hard. Like every, yeah, you just learn lots of different things throughout. <laughs> like, yeah. So lots of, there are lots of hard aspects of, of building yeah. a company is the, is the lesson here, which yeah. by the way, is real right? Like it's, it's, it's real. And it's important to acknowledge that it is hard to do all these things. It is, these are not easy things to do. Not also, not only are they not simple, but they're not easy to do. And I think it's important to acknowledge that as part of everything that you've done in the past six years, because it's a lot. Yeah, I think it's like the stamina, because you have to have like urgency every day, but also be patient at the same time, which is difficult. Um, it's, it's like, there's all these like dichotomies I find, like when you're building a business. So yeah, you have to have like maximum urgency and velocity, like every single day to survive, especially when you're in the early stages, but you also have to be like super patient on your vision and your thesis at like the exact same time. So it's like balancing, like there's all these like little 
balances you have to have like going the whole way through. It's the same with like culture where you know you want to have like a performance oriented culture, but you also don't want to burn people out and uh, micromanage. Like you can have both, but it's difficult to like find that balance. But a lot of that. Yeah, there's. It reminds me of. I think it's Brene Brown, and I might be attributing this uh, concept incorrectly. In which case, I apologize to Brene Brown and whoever I've not attributed this properly to. But I think it is her, and she speaks about how one of the key elements of leadership is being able to hold these two thoughts that are completely opposite, oppositional, at the same time, because both are true. And that that is one of the biggest challenges that leaders face is recognizing that it's always a yes and and not an either or. And we tend to think that it's either or, and we tend to think that's, it can't, it's got to be one or the other, but as leaders, and especially as a CEO, you would be seeing all the time, it's both. <laughs> and that finding that, finding that balance is critical. And, and I'd be curious for you, how have you what has worked for you or what have you learned in doing that in finding the balance or, or um, holding both of those two things to be true at the same time? I, know, like, I think it's more like you have to be super self-reflective the whole way and be like really, really thoughtful about everything you do. So like when you come into, like when you face one of those challenges, like one of the things I do a lot is like I write uh, usually at the end of the day, like at night and I just try to like write down uh, yeah, a very, you know, if there was a some kind of yeah some dichotomy that I face where you have to be in the same moment you have to be like extremely brutal and kind of go for the kill, but at the same time be like very kind and generous, which actually happens a lot when you're when you're doing things and when you're building a business. So you have to kind of reflect on it at the end of the day and understand like why that situation happened and how you approached it and how it made you feel. So you have to have like huge emotional control is the one thing I'd say. Um, yeah, this was uh, I think we're just gonna be quoting people the whole time, but this this, this quote is like. Um, <laughs> This was like Napoleon or something, but it's like I wrote it down once. It's said in French originally, but it was something about how, um, like, you can't, um, if you can't stay, like, if the person, let's say, at the top, let's just say, like, you know, uh, lots of people, like I said, at the top, but if, if, if leadership in the company can't stay, like, composed and even keeled, then you can't expect, like, anybody else to. So if you lose, like, emotional control, you know, it's, it's just, um, it starts to, like, feed into the, the culture everywhere and then people will be super reactive and panicky to everything you can't have that so like in the absolute tensest worst moments and we have like a lot of these times where like it feels like things are absolutely blowing up or we're a very global business we operate in multiple markets a thing can happen in a market that can like feel like it's exploding the entire market you've worked a year for and you know the country leading that market will come like extremely emotionally heated and worried and just like tons of fears and you know you have to yeah you have to be like unbelievably calm and patient the whole way. Um, but then, which I will to them, but then on the other side, you know, I'm very aggressively and potentially with a lot of emotion, making sure like it gets dealt with and fixed without them feeling, you know, all that energy come off me. So it's like, you're constantly dealing with that. But I found definitely like, writing has helped a lot and, uh, and reading. Yeah. You have to read and, and learn from other people's experiences. Otherwise you're not going to be able to like recontextualize what's happening with you. And you're going to feel like it's particularly bad and, and horrible when in reality, you know, comparatively it's probably not. So that will help as well. At least I found. I think that's a really important point to land is that, that the, the opportunity to recontextualize things and to put them in perspective, I, I, that'd be what I would add from my own experience to put them in perspective where it's 
we tend to catastrophize in the moment. Like I am the only one this happens to, it's the worst thing ever. So being able to recontextualize and put it in perspective where it's like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. It's not as bad as I I feel like that is really important when you are leading any organization, let alone a fast growing one. The other thing I do is like, um, even like some visualization where I'll say, okay, well, does like the ideal version of myself, would they like care about this? Or like, would they let this bother them? Or someone that like I admire, not even, doesn't have to be a present day person. Again, like I, we talked before the podcast, I read a lot of history, I'm, like very fascinated by the last kind of hundred years of history. So you can also like someone you admire from history, even, you know, would they let this bother them? In most cases, the answer is no. And even the future version of yourself, the answer is no. Because I find definitely like small people, you know, dwelling on small problems, like you, you guess you stay small, like you're stuck. You, you don't, you know, uh, you don't develop. So yeah, you got to try and recontextualize. And definitely I, I find if you have some, some marker, whether it's like a person, a version of yourself, whatever, that you can put it up against that it helps a lot. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's a great, I think that's a great piece of advice for anyone listening to this to keep in mind that having that, whatever that marker is for you that works to continuously reassess against that. And in those challenging moments, I think that's a really great piece of advice. Um, I'm curious as you have grown the business and dealt with more personalities and stepped more and more into leader from business into CEO leadership, generic business into CEO leadership. Um, what have been the biggest challenges that you've faced, whether it's, and listen, I'm not saying personal or not business or not, but what have been the biggest challenges that, that you faced and, um, what did, what did you learn from them or what did you do to move through them as you, as they came up? The hardest thing for me, and I think my co-founders as well, because they both, they're a bit older than me and had built other companies, but never at like the scale that this one had gone to, that we discounted was culture and how insanely difficult it is to build culture. And that really like, when I look at it, the success of the company is just because of the success of the culture. Not to say it's perfect today and it can always get better, but we definitely have like very good culture. We know from yeah, a few different kind of, case studies or points of success that we can be appointed to, but it took us like years to get there. But that was like probably the biggest failure at the beginning is like completely underinvesting in people and culture and how we thought about all those things and feedbacking and setting up like the architecture of like, you know, career progression, mapping and everything for individuals, stuff like that. You just don't think about because I think the type, when you start a business, you wear like all the hats and you're usually very like, you know, let's say go-getter type where you don't care about your title and you don't care about any of this shit. You just want to like get the job done and whatever. Like, you know, you put me anywhere and like, I'll do it. Give me the crappiest computer. Doesn't matter. Like no sleep. Like I'll just get it done. You kind of have that mentality when you start that definitely changes over a couple of years, but you start with that mentality. And then it took myself and my partners because we're all wired that way. It took us longer than it should have to realize, well, the, you know, not every single person that works here thinks the exact same way that we do about that particular thing. And that we can't build a culture around, you know, grinding and, you know, just killing ourselves every day because that is not going to work at scale. And it, it didn't pretty quickly. That, that took a while. We saw like a lot of like outside advice and counsel and speaking to like, you know, board members and other founders that we know in our network that had kind of gone through it. And it's interesting because like, I'd say the most consistent thing that I get as a challenge at founders face <laughs> is culture building is probably the most like consistent one by far. So that was the hardest one. We definitely failed at the beginning. And I think it was just seeking like as much advice as we possibly could. And then being introspective because the culture ultimately is like a reflection of you and your own principles, for sure. Mm-hmm. The founders of the company. So it was a lot of, again, like introspection work. So I think that's what people discount is 
you can be like brilliant technically, even if you're doing like a really hard engineering based business and you can have like yeah, extremely brilliant technical skills and incredible engineers. But if you don't get the culture right, you can still fail. Like it's, it's, and, and I think people go in to building a business massively discounting like the soft component of the build, which ultimately I think is actually one of the bigger drivers of success than the actual like technical component most of the time. Stay subscribed and hit the bell icon to be notified of our upcoming podcast with Commissioner Matthew Boswell of the Competition Bureau. Hear about competition and marketing rules every business should know. Click the link in the description to learn more about creating an effective compliance program. I'm going to take a clip of this. I'm just going to use this to promote my business going forward. And I say this because I, I, I am nodding along to everything that you're saying because the work that I do is all in leadership and culture. Like that's the business yeah. that I run is in that. And I see this all the time. And what I always say to founders and leaders, because I do work with a lot, a lot of large organizations is it doesn't matter how good your product is. It does not matter what you're selling. If the people don't want to, everything depends on your people. Everything depends on your people wanting to be there, wanting to sell it, wanting to develop it, wanting to do whatever their role is inside the organization. So if you are not developing those people, leading those people and creating a culture that they want to be a part of, they're not going to stay around because there's a very small percentage of people who are ever as bought in as the founders to the idea. And if you're yeah. relying on people to be that bought in, it's, there's, a, there's a tipping point. Yeah, we don't. Like, I think maybe I was not even the first couple of months, but like, I'd say I pretty quickly realized just because I'm so most of our staff are also from like, let's say my generation, like slightly younger generation, skewing younger the, the our staff base. And I'd say, I think it also was like generationally different. Like my parents' generation, it was, you know, very much being the company person, <clears throat> you know, working there for 20, 30 years, getting yep. whatever the gold watch. That was like the thing. And like loyalty was a thing. Your boss could be, you know, asked to you and you just stuck around. But like sticking around was like a merit badge. It was like really mm -hmm. different. Whereas now, not to say it's like the gig economy, and I don't even think that that conceptually is a good thing, but you know, I think that it is a generation that grew up with very different ideals put into their heads about who they are and the type of people they are and what they're capable of. And you know, um, I, I think people are just going to switch jobs more frequently. We already see that. I think it's just like this, this nature of the economy with the new generation coming up is just going to be very different in the way that people go to jobs and the way that their identity is shaped by their work, which is just super different than past ones. Mm -hmm. And we're just super, we're very cognizant of that. <clears throat> so I'd say like the culture that we built at Rivalry, but I think this could be universal. Obviously this is my idea and you know, people will do what they want. We think people just want to work at a place that obviously compensates them at or above market for sure <clears throat> to do work that they feel they're very good at with people that they also feel that are talented in a culture that respects them that will significantly increase the probability of them succeeding in their own personal and professional goals after they leave your company. Like that's our big thing. And we even talk about it when we're interviewing people that haven't yet worked for Rivalry is my actual goal for the culture is I want the probability of your success after you leave Rivalry to be greater than you having done the exact same thing at a comparable company. Like mm -hmm. that's really the goal of the culture is like a performance oriented culture that respects you and has you working with people ideally that you want to work with that are talented. And that whatever you do after, we want, you know, rivalry alumni to be doing things that are like absolutely incredible. I don't care if you stay with us for one, two, three years, like do what you want, but you should, this should be like a training round to just be um, like a significantly better version of yourself once you exit, whatever you want to exit.
So it's, it's not a culture that places um, necessarily more value on staying longer, I guess I'd say. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's kind of how we, how we do it. Yep. And I think that's a really healthy perspective to have, right? Like I think when you can, um, when I do, I work with a lot of larger organizations and we're often talking about, you know, the employee experience start to finish. And when I come at it from a culture standpoint, I will say, ultimately, when someone leaves your organization, you want them to be wherever they are going to be cheerleading for you, even though they're not there because they had such a good, if you have people who are like, rivalry was awesome and I learned so much, that means you've done your job from a culture perspective. Because they don't, they're 100%. not there. They don't have to do it. And that, and that's, it sounds to me as you're 100%. speaking, I'm like, that is completely aligned. That's what you're setting yourself. That's the success you're setting up for those people. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just difficult. Like I think to the point you made, I very quickly realized it is not realistic to have people have the same excitement about the company vision that I, I do because I'm the one who built it with my partners. Right. So yep. it's just, I, I'm completely realistic with that. And that's why the goal of the culture is not to have like, who can be the most bought in the, for the vision for the longest and stay the longest. It's, you know, who can gain the most from a really performance oriented culture and then find themselves leaving here, achieving like even greater success than having not been here. That's, that's really all we want to be honest. Yeah. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And I, th- and I appreciate you bringing up culture as like the, you know, the biggest challenge and, and also opportunity to learn. Cause I think we don't all, we often talk, the number of times I hear people talk about getting funding or, or going public. And it's not to say those things aren't challenging. I want to make that really clear. I understand they are, it's not to take away from that, but we don't often founders don't talk about the softer skills and the challenges that come with that softer side of business and they're real. So I, I think it's really important. You brought that up, especially because you're in an industry that is more technical than some of the other ones. Yeah, I think solving technical problems is obviously like extremely difficult, and that's like a pre and it's a prerequisite to success. But I don't think it's a determinant of success as much as building a great, highly scalable organization that attracts really talented people to do their best work um, and enjoy themselves. Um, that will lead likely to more success than just solving really hard engineering problems. Well, you need both, but yeah, yeah. It's again, it's one of those. It's not either or. It's both and, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a great point. Um, So I'm curious for those who, um, you know, aren't familiar with rivalry and aren't really familiar with what you do. And we've talked about it being a bit technical. Can you give us a quick overview of what it is that, that you do, that the, or that you do specifically, Steve, but what the, what the company does and, and kind of what their, the world they play in is. Yeah, so we're definitely, we, we see ourselves as like a media and sports betting business. So we are like, our core product that we make money on is sports betting. So the way a sportsbook makes money, it's somewhat simple on the surface. I'm not going to get into kind of the math beneath it, but basically you're the house. You know, people have seen any, you know, uh, lots of TV shows and movies around, you know, casinos or sports betting or bookies or whatever, maybe you're the house. So all that happens is you've got two teams playing each other. People bet on either side because you have to pay out no matter who wins. You're taking on risk. You're taking on the risk you basically keep a little bit off the top of the pot, so to say, and that compensates you for the risk because it is possible you could lose a lot. Um, It's also possible you could win a lot, but you create some margin of error in the way that you manage your sports book and that allows you to generate revenue to compensate you for the risk. That's basically all it is. The way that we operate things at Rivalry though is we're very esports focused. So esports is like competitive video games, very, very popular 
thing now. You know, most people under the age of 30 in most countries are more likely to watch a major esport than they are a traditional or like physical sport. So, and the, the viewership, like the concurrent viewership for most large esports is bigger than almost any sport in the world, other than maybe some NFL games and some soccer games in Europe. So it's like extremely, extremely popular around the world. It's kind of like the sport of the internet and like the next big kind of um, wave of what, let's say, a younger demo is looking to participate in. And then that's like our bread and butter is focusing on that. And then we offer betting on everything else. So all the major esports, there's like a dozen of them and then major traditional sports like soccer, hockey, whatever. And then the positioning though of the business and almost like 50% of the staff are like very creative focused. So creative marketing, branding, partnerships, all that kind of stuff. So we're a very, very large media brand in the place that we, um, the space that we play in. So the monthly engagement into rivalry is more than the aggregate of all of our peers combined. So we're like an extremely engaged brand globally in the thing that we do, and like by far the biggest. And yeah, we have 150 brand partners and creators we work with, you know, 25 plus social and video content channels, lots of original production, original content, uh, everything like that. So yeah, very like relevant, contextually relevant, kind of meme ridiculous, you know, gaming, internet-based, cultural content, I guess is what I'd say. Yeah. So that drives like brand growth and acquisition. And then the sports book is how we make money on customers that come in. So... The, I mean, it's, that's fascinating. And I could ask you 1000 questions, but I'm going to ask you this question. Um, with all of that, what is what do you see as either the future for rivalry or the future for this? And I'm, you know, I'm saying industry recognizing that it that's a big word to use in this case. But like, yep. what do you see as the future for both for either rivalry and or kind of the industry, this world in general? Sure. Because I think it's a lot of people are unfamiliar with it or unfamiliar with this aspect of it sure it's becoming like legal everywhere now so even ontario is in the process of legalizing sports betting and we'll be able to offer rivalry in ontario shortly ontario is already one of the biggest like offshore sports betting markets in the world like people here bet a lot <laughs> perfect a significant yeah a significant amount so now the government's legalizing it because it's actually very similar to cannabis so like okay people are already doing it a lot why don't we just like tax it and make a little bit of money on it mm -hmm. <laughs> so which is rational so that's that's and, and also regulate it because there is like good reason to, to regulate this industry to be honest so it i don't like comparing it to cannabis but just because a lot of canadian people will be familiar with it it is kind of that where like cannabis got destigmatized by the legalization in a way and people realize that maybe it's not so bad um betting is actually very similar where it is very much part of the culture in a lot of other places in the world, like Europe, um, Asia, even South America, where it's not seen in a stigmatized way as it is in like North America and certain parts of more like call it Central Europe, I'd say, where it's just like part of culture. And that's what's starting to happen globally is that people are realizing that um, it is just part of the culture of watching competitive things, period. Like people just want to put, you know, their money where their mouth is and have some skin in the game. So I think that's a big part of what we're seeing is like there's destigmatization of sports betting. Slots and casinos is something very different, but like just sports betting itself is definitely becoming destigmatized. And even our approach at Rivalry is like hyper casual. So our whole thing is like people spending what they spend on like Uber Eats in a week. And that's really all people do is like, it's just that kind of spending. It's, you know, like your Netflix subscription every month. It's like, that's the limit of it. And we just do a lot of volume of that kind of uh, spending. So just as like a straight entertainment product, I think it's just entering the mainstream in a, in a more meaningful way. The same way that cannabis went from like this negative weird thing where now cannabis can sponsor and be involved in lots of, you know, more mainstream places and doesn't get looked down upon in the same way. So I think that's what's just happening culturally with it. 
And then for rivalry, you know, sports betting is where we're starting, but I don't really think it's going to be the end of what we do. We're very much just building like really great experiences at, I'd say like the forefront of internet culture, because that's just like the world that we live in. So we saw, we see lots of opportunity to like, when you've got a great consumer brand, then you can do more with it. Like great consumer brands can go kind of more horizontal. So sports betting is our main product. People really like and consume our content. We want to do more of that and maybe start monetizing more like the media side of the business. Um, there's just a lot of other kind of components that we can slot in because people just kind of love consuming what we do and are just like super engaged in our ecosystem. So yeah, ideally going like bigger and broader in the future than just sports betting. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I, I mean, I'll give you an example of, I did not know that sports betting was illegal uh, because I think of things like if you're from Toronto, this will, you know, the Woodbine racetrack and there's all these different like horse racing and, and that's legal. The, right. So this is, so that's this legal. is right. Yeah. So this is what I was going to say is I know the Woodbine, I know that horse racing, like people go to Woodbine racetrack and bet. And there was the, I mean, I assume it's related, but there was one in sort of the beaches, the whatever that betting place was. So I just assumed that it was legal to bet on game. But I, as someone who doesn't do it, I was like, oh, you can probably just go and bet anywhere. So I think it's really interesting that some things have been legal and some things haven't. And it sounds like this is becoming a case of eventually all sports betting will be legalized and destigmatized and open up a whole whack of possibilities in different ways as a result. Yeah, people in Ontario are betting. It's like not a super clear number, but they're betting over a billion dollars a year uh, offshore on sports betting currently already. That is yeah. wild. So the government's just like, well, why don't we regulate it and then tax it a little bit? And that makes sense. <laughs> That's what you should do. So out yeah. of curiosity, and you may not have an answer for this, I recognize that. Yeah. What is what would be the appeal or the the reason to if if i if I'm already betting offshore and I have this whole thing yeah, set yeah. up because this is easy. Like why sure. would why would I change that? It's not super easy. So like what happens is most markets are like that where you are betting offshore. The thing that's the most challenging about betting is getting your deposit money in and out when it's in a quasi gray zone, which is what it is in Ontario right now. It's hard for TD Bank to, you know, it's not the easiest thing to get your wire transfer, your whatever out to your sports betting wallet on some offshore sports book from your like TD Bank. Like it's, Got it's it. it can be a little clunky. Yeah. So it makes that smoother and way easier and like the consumer experience way better. Um, and then from a sports book perspective, you can market legally because there's a reason why currently in Ontario, you don't see, you don't get spam with sports betting apps when you're like driving on the highway or doing whatever. It's not to say that's what's coming, but it's just, it will be able to be legally marketed like other consumer products in the province. Whereas right now you can't market it that way. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Also, I'm looking forward to driving on the highway and being spammed with sports betting. You will. You will. <laughs> it, it, it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. Ask people in New York how they're feeling about the recent legal because it just legalized in New York like a few weeks ago. And it is like it's I'm hearing it's a little insane there. What people are like you, every paid ad on your Instagram and Twitter. If you're in New York or if you're sitting in a taxi, those little videos that are running. It's like literally just sports betting right now. I don't think it's going to be like that. I, I don't think it's going to be like that here because the government and the regulators' appetite is a little different here than it is in the U.S. So I don't think it's going to be as bad, but I'd say that by the end of the year, people are going to start to see a a lot more sports betting ads here. They're currently yeah. seeing, which is basically zero. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. I, I appreciate the context and I appreciate the information because <laughs> I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting for you know our listeners and our viewers of this 
Um, I'm curious, before we wrap up, I, I always like to say, is there anything that we didn't get to that you wanted to, to talk about or emphasize that we did speak about? Because I think it's, you know, it's your time and we talked, I mean, I appreciate you sharing. We spoke about a lot of different things. So is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with before we wrap this up? I'd say for maybe just for people that want to be entrepreneurs that are listening to this or looking to start a business that I discounted at the beginning. And I think a lot of people say this, which is like how you take care of yourself, like personally and your energy levels. And there's always a good analogy. So there's a former like prime minister um, of Singapore and Singapore is like an interesting case study also in like commercial success as like a country that I recommend people reading the history about. Anyways, the, the guy who kind of built it from the you know, 40s and 50s up to today is a guy named Lee Kuan Yew. He's like a very well-known kind of politician and statesman. He wrote a biography and he talked about um, how he took care of himself and like his body and himself physically and how he prioritized that at the beginning. And that's what gave him so much longevity because he was one of those guys who just kept going and going forever, basically. And an analogy he used that I liked, and I tell people who overwork themselves this in the company as well, it's a bit of an old school analogy, but basically saying that, you know, if you have a farm and you've got a horse that is tilling your fields, um, you know, you take care of that horse extremely well. Like if you speak to people in rural environments that have an animal that is responsible for like, you know, a lot of their livelihood, you take care of that animal really well. You make sure it's, you know, horseshoes are good. It's hubs are clean. It doesn't get overworked. Like it doesn't strain its muscles because your entire livelihood is to that. You like really, really take care of that animal, like extremely well. You make sure it gets rested. It eats well. It's like health is perfect. Um, that's you when you're building a business, you are the horse. <laughs> so, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta really, take care of yourself because doing like performance oriented, like high intensity work for a short period of time, having taken care of yourself and slept well and ate well, and you know, had some uh, release valve for your brain because you can't be on all the time. Guaranteed. Like it took me a while to learn this because I was very much work like 18 hours a day kind of mindset at the beginning, but it's different now. You will actually get way more work done and be higher output and do better work at like 10 to 12 hours of like high performance work where you've maintained yourself than pushing for 18 hours just for like you know you know the sake of it because like you think you should because you saw some guy on the internet that was doing it it's just um that's a really hard lesson and it's hard to convince yourself of but i would do that from the beginning and you'll see results like really really quickly so yeah i appreciate and I, I appreciate that thank you for sharing it i think it's a you know it's the opposite of the hustle message that we get so often which is yeah, just yeah. like drive it harder push more do and it's like well actually studies show us really consistently that people can only be actually productive for That's four wrong. or five hours a day so why are we telling yeah. people to yeah, do they've, eight they've shown like when you're on if you do if you have six hours of sleep or less for more than two to three days in a row, your mental acuity is that of being drunk yep yeah so yeah. don't do it yeah, yeah it doesn't work <laughs> yeah so everyone take this as the note to stop doing that and Before. actually take care of yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's great. And I appreciate you sharing that, Stephen. It's been really lovely speaking with you. I appreciate the time that you've taken to talk with us great. today and for getting into all of that. Thank um, you. And for all of our listeners, thanks for listening to Canada's podcast. Like, comment, and subscribe to all our channels to get the latest podcasts from entrepreneurs across Canada.